And good morning or good afternoon if you've been sleeping late. And if you are groggy, then yes, you are officially an election day junkie. If you're like me, you've scanned all the websites, you are watching the talking heads, you are texting your friends, looking on social media to get all the little tidbits over the last, I guess, 24 hours. And today's lineup is all about Tuesday's elections. We've got Beto, Katie, Abdul, and Celinda to make sense of all that. And it's a special long podcast, so buckle up. This is Jonathan Tassini, and this is the Working Life Podcast for November 7th, 2018. This podcast is brought to you in part by our major sponsor, the Amalgamated Transit Union, the largest transit union in North America that fights for the interests of its 199,000 hardworking members and promotes mass transit. It's also sponsored by the National Union of Healthcare Workers, a member-led movement for democracy, quality patient care, and a stronger voice in the workplace. You can hear the podcast, let your friends know, on the Progressive Radio Network Thursdays at 6 p.m. And of course, we depend mostly on small financial supporters like you, so please do go over to workinglife.org and click on the podcast tab. Look for a link to Patreon so you can become a financial sponsor of the show at whatever level you can afford. And that makes it possible for us to keep bringing you this podcast, which, among other things, we had over the course of the last year, scores of progressive candidates who were running for election at various levels. Okay, so some people might be disappointed with the results from election night, and I get that. There are some disappointments on my part as well. But here is a short list of things to be positive about. And I acknowledge that my list is from my perspective as a Democrat who thinks the party needs serious overhaul and really tearing apart down to its base, but who also believes that we have to fight today the battles at hand that challenge the white supremacists, the corporate elites, the anti-union forces, and that means usually going all out to elect Democrats. And I did my part, and I'm sure you did. I walked and canvassed for many hours just to do my little part in the election effort. So here are just five things to be happy about before we get to our guests. And why not make your own list to hopefully feel a little better if you're still down in the dumps? Number one, Scott Walker is history. Done. One of the most despicable governors in recent memory. An enemy of the working people of this country, not just of Wisconsin. Or as Richard Trumka, the head of the AFL-CIO, called him last night, a national disgrace, whose whole mission was to destroy the rights of union members, to take apart the basic living standards of people, not just in Wisconsin, but all across the country. He was one of the most anti-union governors in history, and he was a person who was a hero to the right wing, to the anti-union forces. He lost re-election. Good riddance, and if I could, I would urinate on his political grave. Number two, over a hundred women will have power in Congress, including scores of women of color like Rashida Talib from Detroit and Johanna Hayes, the first African-American woman Congress member from Connecticut. Number three, Democrats regain control of at least 
to this date, as I record this introduction, seven governor's mansions. And that is huge when you think about the simple task of redistricting. And let me just quickly go through that for my listeners. Every 10 years, as you know, we have a census in this country. And that census, which looks at where people live, is the basis for the drawing of congressional districts and state legislative districts. Governors play an important role in that process. They can either approve or veto maps that are passed typically by legislative bodies. So if you have a Democratic governor in a place like Michigan or Wisconsin, he or she, in this case, in Michigan, a woman, and in Wisconsin, a man, they can oversee the drawing of a map that is more favorable to drawing districts that support the election of Democrats, potentially progressives, both at the House level, the congressional level, and at the state legislative level. And that means for the following decade, who has power? And in fact, over the last 10 to 20 years, the Republicans, because they've controlled many governorships and state legislative bodies, they've been able to redistrict states in a way that gives them outsized power. Number four, one million ex-felons in Florida will get the right to vote again, thanks to a ballot initiative which passed overwhelmingly. And number five, lastly, Medicare expansion, one in Idaho, Nebraska, and Utah, what you would think would be so-called red states. And that expansion will provide access to health coverage for about 300,000 working adults. Now, the list goes on and on. I could give you more and more positive things that I saw in the election, but make your own list. Think about those things that were positive, that you can take solace from that you can take as a way to continue to organize and to be engaged as we move down the road to obviously tough battles ahead. At the same time, let's be clear, progressives need to do some hard thinking and have a lot of honest conversations about what we learned. And I'll do some of that here today and a lot more in the future. So we're going to start by hearing first from Beto O'Rourke. And yes, he came up short. And I will say that that was among the top big bummers from Election Day for me, partly because for me, there is no more odious, fake, lying politician of either major party than Ted Cruz. And it would have been sweet, so sweet, to see that piece of refuse have to concede defeat. But far more important, Beto ran a great race. Remember this, he took no corporate or PAC money, and yet, as we, I think, all know, raised tens of millions of dollars in small donations. And he came within 2.5 percentage points of defeating Cruz. And he kept Cruz to just above 50% of the vote in Texas. Now, I spoke to Beto back in April when he was on the campaign trail. And I think what he said back then is worth hearing again in the wake of what happened on Election Day. And Beto, I know that one of the things you've been doing is covering a lot of distance uh, in the state in your car. And I understand you're leaving one area, one meeting to go to another. Tell us what you're up to today. We were just at a small restaurant in Martin County, West Texas, and are now driving to La Mesa. And as I 
and talk to me. We were on a road going past cotton fields on either side of us with giant wind turbines uh, all around, uh, which is which is part of the story of West Texas and Texas in general. We're an energy and an agriculture state, but we're also leading the country today in the generation of wind power. So um, just great day to be out here and, and feel very lucky to be doing this. Yeah, and I have actually done that drive uh, across Texas from Houston all the way to El Paso along I-10. I don't know if you're on I-10, but I remember that there were large areas where there was a tremendous amount of wind in the open plains, in the open areas where it occurred to me, maybe not then, but certainly since, that you could certainly generate a huge amount of uh, energy, especially for agriculture, just on basis of wind turbines. That's right, and and that's why we lead the country today in wind power. And as you probably also know from being in Texas, there's no reason in the world we shouldn't lead the country when it comes to the generation of solar power. In a community like El Paso, where I'm from, uh, our local electric utility is now building out uh, utility-scale solar um, so that Texas can also lead in that category as well. So it's connected to, obviously— saving the planet, doing what's right for the environment and the generations that follow. But it's also great for economic growth and the jobs that we're creating in West Texas and in other parts of the state. So uh, a little secret that I will let you in on. I was actually born in Houston, although I left when I was uh, uh, an infant, so I can't claim to be a Texan. But I do remember visiting there during the summers. My grandparents lived there and those vast areas of development and at the time you know, people didn't think about uh, energy and um, in the same way, alternative energy. But that's gone through a strong evolution, I gather, just based on the costs. That's right. Um, you know, solar is now really competitive with almost every other um, source of, of energy that we have. Wind, especially because we've invested in the transmission lines in Texas, is great just because <laughs> for the ratepayer, um, it brings down costs, but also for these family farms and ranches, um, it adds additional revenue uh, for those farmers and ranchers. It's another way to keep those farms and ranches together and to add to the local tax base. So it, it's really a very positive thing for Texas. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, as uh, many of my listeners know and people know about you, you have represented El Paso. The uh, Your congressional district is in the El Paso area, but now you're campaigning statewide. What have you found that's different or new or revealing to you about people in other parts of Texas that maybe either you didn't know or that you think is really important for all Texans to know or in general people to know about what people are thinking out there about politics? In anywhere we go in Texas, people are asking questions about and, and showing leadership in areas like public education and making sure that every kid they're wanting to make sure that everyone can see a doctor or afford medication. We just had a school teacher in Weatherford, Texas, die of the flu, uh, in part because she couldn't afford her copay on her flu medication. You know, guaranteed quality health care for every single American. Everyone in this state uh, is something that's on everyone's mind, no matter where I go. Um, everybody wants to see Texas lead the way on immigration. We're the defining immigrant state. We're the defining immigrant story. We should be helping to rewrite our immigration laws in our own image. 
our values, our history, our heritage, what we know to be good for this country. Uh, and then uh, we were just at this small meeting with, with Republicans in Stanton, inside of Martin County, West Texas. And the thing that they're most excited about is that we're running this campaign without PACs or corporations or special interests, just with people. So those things, those things seem to unite us, and, and there will be differences in parts. You know, we're in a in a area that's really focused on farming and energy right now in, in West Texas. Uh, I'll be in parts of the state where there are other industries that are important there. In Austin, it's the tech industry, and San Antonio, it's cybersecurity. But everywhere, people want to see us do better, and they want us to work together and and put our differences aside. And that's really the way that we're running this this campaign. Mm-hmm. So obviously, one of the things that's on a lot of people's minds is the state of the Democratic Party, both nationally and certainly in Texas. And as you might know, I was a national surrogate for Bernie Sanders. And so he reflects a certain segment of the Democratic Party and what people want the party to stand for. And what's really interesting about Texas to me is, you know, the old saw about a yellow dog, you know, you'd you'd, you'd be willing to vote for a yellow dog on the Democratic ticket before you'd vote for Republican back in the day. And so I'm wondering about your perspective about this sort of various ways in which populism and Democratic ideals come together and what you're seeing out there in terms of the future of the party. I'll tell you that um, some of the issues that Bernie really led on um, and campaigned on transcend different factions of the Democratic Party and and transcend party altogether. Mm -hmm. You know, at this restaurant where I was sitting down with with local leaders, almost all of whom are Republican, um, they asked about health care and they talked about how here in this county and through so much of Texas, the greatest provider of mental health care services is the county jail system, uh, and that so many people um, are leading such diminished lives right now because they don't have the ability to see that doctor or therapist. And they wanted to know where I was on this. And I said, listen, I'm for guaranteed access to quality health care, universal health care. And, uh, and I said, if I were in the Senate, I would co-sponsor. Senator Sanders, Medicare for all, single payer health care bill. And everyone to a person at that table said that that's what we need to do because they understand that that will cost us a lot less than what we're paying now at the county jail or the emergency room or in the opportunity cost of not having people be able to lead their lives to their fullest potential or contribute with everything that they've got. So this, this is something that is not just appeals to, but is being driven by people throughout Texas, Republican, Democrat, independent, non-voter alike. And I, and I think that's, um, I think that's exciting. Yeah. Let's stick on healthcare. Cause the great point you make is the logic of the economics of it makes sense to regular people. And then I'll ask you as a small business owner, someone who has started his own company and is worked as a small business owner. I've often said that the progressives should be making the arguments to business people and even big businesses that single payer is the only way to go just to save the billions of dollars that companies waste, generally speaking overall, the tens of billions of dollars that are wasted on healthcare that you could invest in good jobs. Absolutely. Uh, you just look at the economic potential we would unleash 
if people were healthy enough to finish their education or to go to work or to pay more in taxes because they're now earning an income or to start a business themselves and hire other people or the folks who are chained to jobs today that they hate, that they may not be very good at, that they're unhappy in, who if given the chance because their health care is no longer tied to their employer, could be able to do so much more for themselves, their families, their community, their country. Yeah, the, the economists that I've listened to say the debate is not whether we're going to save money by going to universal health care. It's whether we're going to save um, you know, a lot of money or, as one economist told me, a shit ton of money. And, uh, you know, that's a t- that's a it, tech- it, that's it, a that's it, a technical it, term, by the way. A shit ton of money is an economic technical right. term. That's right. Yeah. So, you know, it's the right thing to do. And, it, and it'll it'll really um, it'll really help power our economy. It'll it'll see a lot more people being able to find work. And, and folks leading much better, much healthier, much stronger lives, which is, it's just good every way you, you look at it. And okay, on, on jobs, I want to just shift to this jobs question because you brought it up indirectly in our conversation. I, and I was reading a lot of material about you and your positions. And you say on your website that you want to bring what you call high value jobs to Texans, both unemployed and underemployed people. What's a high value job from your point of view? I mean, there's so many of them. So I mentioned um, San Antonio has is, is become one of the hubs for the cybersecurity industry in North America. Um, those cybersecurity jobs don't necessarily require a four-year education, but they do require an investment in your training, your certification. Uh, and for too many of our fellow Texans, including those in San Antonio, they literally cannot afford that. Um, There are high-value, high-wage jobs uh, in the energy industry. I I mentioned these wind turbines that we're passing. At West Texas A&M University in Canyon, Texas, um, there are high-value jobs that require the investment in the people who need the training to be able to work them. There are welders uh, that we need to train because there are welding jobs that are going unhired throughout Texas. But if we don't step up and provide the help for the apprenticeship, the trade school, the four-year degree, whatever it takes for you to be competitive for those jobs, uh, we're going to lose out as a state. You're going to lose out from your ability to be able to earn a living wage and have the, the function and the purpose that comes with that. So investing in additional education and quality education, I think, is fundamental. And then having a minimum wage that is also a livable wage. So getting to $15 an hour is is important as well. And so let me just ask you on top of that, though, you know, I've seen, for example, Elon Musk was going to build this big, huge uh, solar, solar panel uh, plant in uh, the Buffalo area, which, as you probably know, in New York has been devastated by deindustrialization. But, um, you know, those quote unquote that would be considered a high value job. People get trained, there's apprenticeships, but none of those jobs are actually going to be high value jobs unless you actually have a union. And one of the reasons that we don't now have good paying jobs is because of the decline of the labor movement. So how do you view that? And especially in Texas, where at least in the private sector, unions are not as strong. You're really onto something here because not only is it the union's ability 
to use the value of the labor that is being uh, provided to leverage for higher wages and better working conditions, but it is also the training and the skills that these trade unions ensure for the workers. So I'll give you an example. El Paso has seen a record level of federal investment as we have built out Fort Bliss, for example, $6 billion of investment. But we literally had to import workers into El Paso, though we had a fairly high unemployment rate because we didn't have the skilled workforce to be able to do those jobs, the carpenters, the pipe fitters, the electricians, the sheet metal workers, um, the, the demise of organized labor in places like El Paso has diminished our earning potential, has reduced the ability for more people to move into and even beyond the middle class in, in communities throughout Texas. So making sure that we are labor friendly and that we uh, allow folks to excel in these unions and allow unions to do well in our state is not just good for the unions. They're great for those uh, in our communities, including those who may not be in unions, but will benefit from what unions are able to bargain for and the spending power of people who are now earning more in the local community and in that economy. So that's a great point. Yeah, well, absolutely true. Unions created the middle class. And I think you made an additional wonderful point that uh, union wages, and this has been true for decades, even if you aren't in a union where unions do raise wages and that those same communities, they pull up the wages of people who aren't in a union because of the competition for good people. So that's clearly one of the things that seems to me that, frankly, not only the Republicans have forgotten, but too many Democrats have forgotten that and are not strong enough about uh, understanding the connection between the rights of people to have a union and economic growth. So that's a great point that you made. That's Tam. right. Yeah. And, and if we're not there to listen to people who are going through this. So I, I mentioned I was just in Martin County and we're now going to La Mesa. But before that, we were in Midland. We were in Glasscock County. We were in San Saba. Uh, we were in Brady, Texas. There, there are people there who used to have good union jobs. There, there are farmers who used to be able to depend on the support and the insurance or the safety net that the government would provide. But as you mentioned, it's not just Republicans. Democrats have not been showing up to these communities and letting people know that we are going to fight for them. We're going to stand up for the little gal and the little guy, the farmer, the rancher, the person working in the oil field, uh, the mom and dad who want to make sure that their kid's going to get a great education the person who used to be a member of the union, but the union no longer has a presence in their community because this state has made it so hard to organize. They're not Republicans or Democrats. They're just folks who want to be fought for, listened to, understood, uh, served and represented. And if we do not show up, uh, then, then we do not deserve their support and their vote and we won't have them. So um, that's, that's a big part of why we're traveling Texas and, and campaigning in this way. And so let me, and to wrap up, because I know you got a ton of calls you got to make and you got to talk to people. So uh, before I ask the last question, how many miles have you actually driven so far in the campaign on the road there? I, I don't know. It's, it's tens of, of thousands at this point because we have visited over 230 counties of the 254 counties of Texas. And you know, because you mentioned growing up, driving from Houston to El Paso, they're on the same road, Interstate 10. But it is a 12-hour drive from one of those cities to the next. So there's a lot of people, 28 million of us, to listen to, work with, 
and, and we're going to make sure we give everyone a chance to be part of this. Well, you should put a little counter on your website. I think it'd be kind of a fun thing for people to watch, you know, all the miles that you add up there kind of over time on your website, just as a thought. But here's my the, the actual final question. So you ha- have been campaigning all around the state. Your area has been mostly in El Paso in your congressional career. What have you found that really surprised you in this campaign that you hadn't thought you would see as you've traveled? Gosh, there's, there's so many things that come to mind. I mean, just just from the immediate stark beauty of this state that I, many parts that I hadn't seen, you know, being in the panhandle in Canadian Texas or Pampa or, or Canyon, um, the surprise uh, I have found in how I'll be in the deepest, reddest, most rural county, and folks want the same things that we want in El Paso, and they really identify less by party and more about what's what's going to get done um i I think just the the willingness for people to to get involved in what started out as a long shot campaign um and one that's being run without any PAC support and, and coming out in the hundreds and thousands um donating in the millions um uh you know five ten fifteen bucks at a time um all of that was a surprise because I didn't run uh, because anyone asked me to. You know, the DNC probably didn't even know who I was. Um, <laughs> you know, the state party didn't come knocking. Um, th- this was a, a decision my wife and I made because given what's going on in this country right now, um, the, the, the challenge that we face, the opportunities we have before us, we, we had to stand up and do everything that we could. And just that it has been this successful and we've had a chance to work with so many great people has just been amazing. And so I've, I've been so surprised and just has made me so much more hopeful than I ever could have expected to be. I, I just, that's, that's been amazing. As I said earlier, one of the great outcomes of the election is the huge number of women who ran for office at every level and who won. More than 100 women will be members of Congress now. Sweeping into office were women like Rashida Tlaib in Detroit, as I said, Johanna Hayes in Connecticut, the first black woman member of Congress from Connecticut, and Ayanna Presley, the first African-American woman from Massachusetts to hold a House seat. And then there was Katie Hill who looks poised to win the 25th congressional district in California, defeating a Republican incumbent. Though the race has not been called, as I record this, she leads by 2.5%, which is roughly over 4,000 votes, with 100% of the precincts reporting. In January, I spoke with Katie about her campaign, and so let's listen to our conversation from back then. And Katie, one of the things that you uh, seem very passionate about and you're campaigning about, it's on your website, is health care. And at the very least, it seems to me that this comes from two things. One is that um, both your mom and your grandmother were nurses, so you grew up sort of in a healthcare environment, I imagine, or at least uh, you had that in the background of your life. And at the same time, your now husband had a 
fairly significant um, healthcare crisis. Mm-hmm. Why don't you talk about either of those and the sure. way they've influenced you? Yeah, so it's a it's actually a combination of several different things that makes healthcare such a priority for me. Uh, you're right that my mom and actually both of my grandmothers being nurses is a huge part of it. I also was planning on becoming a nurse before I uh, ended up switching career paths. I started nursing school and was working in the emergency department at the hospital my mom works at. Uh, and I ended up, you know, holding uh, the hand of a 17-year-old gang member as who was who was shot multiple times um, as he took his last breaths. And I was comforting his sister mm. while she told me about how they bounced around the foster care system and uh, how their mom, you know, was a total drug addict and how you know he wasn't supposed to end up like this, but he got involved in a gang and has, she had no one else. She was, you know, she was just devastated. She had no one else in her life, and uh, it was that and a. a Several different other experiences made me realize I wanted to work on the social issues that led to people showing up in the emergency room in the first place, um, rather than healthcare alone. And so I switched into the nonprofit sector. But uh, you know, I was exposed to the, the issues that surround healthcare from the very beginning. My mom actually became, when she became a nurse, it was in the Antelope Valley, at, which is part of the district, and she worked at the trauma center. That's the main regional trauma center in our district, and. You know, it, poverty is a big deal there. Foster kids. Uh, you sh- some of the some of the issues that she saw are in stories that I kind of grew up with were ones that you just can't um, you can't forget. And mm-hmm. knowing, I it, for me, it's always been a fundamental value that everyone, no matter what kind of circumstance you grow up in or uh, you know what you can afford, deserves healthcare. It's just an it's an unquestionable mm-hmm. thing for me. Um, so then I switched into the working in homelessness. And there I were, I was, I was able to work on the ACA expansion, uh, and it's particular, mm-hmm. or, sorry, the ACA implementation, particularly the Medicaid expansion, the Medi-Cal expansion here in California, uh, which got coverage to 13.5 million Californians. And a huge number of those were single adults, low income, single adults. And many of those were people who were experiencing homelessness. So my organization was involved in the enrollment of those individuals helping them get to their primary care physicians for the first time or you know, uh, enrolled in a medical home, uh, finding them once they were found out to be eligible because of enrollment and uh, general relief benefits or something like that. And, uh, and, and starting to get them the care that they needed that they've been missing out on for so long because they were never previously eligible for care. And we saw health outcomes just drastically begin to change. And uh, to, so to know, to see that on the front lines and to see healthcare reform in action and knowing how much, how much benefit it was not only to the people, but to the entire system, to the hospitals, to the first responders, to, um, you know, to everybody who's, who's working on any level of these, these issues, social workers, it's all so interconnected. And, um, so we know, you know, that, that it works and that should be the case for everybody. There should be no one who's left out of that. Um, yeah. So on a personal note, my husband, uh, in 2010, we had a short period where he didn't have insurance. I was new at my job at PATH. We weren't married yet. And his, his, uh, insurance through his employer wouldn't take effect yet. And because he had asthma preconditioning precondition as a kid, he was not able to get insurance on the private market. This was after the ACA had passed, but hadn't taken effect yet. And there were waiting periods for employers to give healthcare to employees. Uh, so, you know, he was 26 years old, young and healthy. We were rock climbers and backpackers and thought, you know, he, as long as we're careful, he should be fine. 
it's only a few months. You're invulner you're you're invulnerable at that age. Right, we're one of those. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um but turns out we weren't. And uh the day of my bridal shower, he came back from you know, I did the thing with all the girls at his actually his parents' house and he came back with his dad uh from seeing a movie and uh, all of a sudden, you know, it was he, it was the rest of the family that was still there and all of a sudden he's he like grabbed his chest and he's like, Oh, my chest is really hurting and we all of us, so his, his dad is a former police officer, a retired police officer. Um, you know, I've worked in healthcare. We're, we're pretty non-dramatic people. So everybody was like, Oh, it's probably just heartburn. You ate popcorn. Just take some, take some heartburn medicine. And he's like, okay, you sure? And he's like taking like tons and tons of Pepto-Bismol. And, um, and then it didn't go away. And, uh, but like, he's like, this is really bad. And, but we knew he didn't have insurance. We didn't want to go to the doctor. Um, because that even just a regular doctor's visit was something we couldn't afford, and which just by the way, that's that's what so many people face. They sort right. of say, "I'm not going to go to the doctor because I can't afford it." And so yes. there you are with this crisis, and he, what happened? Yes. So waited a couple of days. Uh, the pain eventually went away. Turns out later we found out that mm. the reason for that. But finally, he is trying to walk up a flight of stairs and like just can't breathe at all. And so we're finally like, okay, you're gonna have to go to like, you know, a clinic for this. So we look up a free clinic. We've never done anything like this before. So there's this, this free clinic that he goes to and he shows up and, um, they take a chest x-ray and the, the nurse or, you know, the technician was, it calls the radiologist and put hands the phone to Kenny. And he's like, Oh, this isn't a good sign. And the, the, uh, radiologist talks to him and says, um, yeah, so your lung is 100% collapsed. You need to go to an ER right away. And uh, they never see lungs that are 100% collapsed, and it's because he waited days to go in. So mm. um, he had to go to the ER, fortunately, because my mom's an ER nurse. We went to her ER, and uh, we he basically had to – he got a chest tube. He um, Everyone kept coming in to, to look at his, his chest x-ray and to talk to him and stuff like that because just 100% lung collapse is, is – very, very rare. And they're like, wow, I can't believe that happened. Um, but it was totally because he wasn't able to, uh, to, to go in. And so he ended up having his, if you got in in time, went before it was hundred percent collapsed, a chest tube would work to reinflate the lung. Uh, but because he had waited so long, it didn't, it wouldn't stay reinflated. And so he had to have chest, he had to have full surgery. So he had surgery and, uh, was in the hospital for 11 days. And fortunately, everything is okay, but we came out in $200,000 plus in debt. So um, wow. I had to postpone the wedding and uh, ended up moving back in with his parents and realized, well, this is exactly what can happen when people don't have health care. Mm. So. And in fact, a, a huge number of bankruptcies in the United States, the number one reason has been prior certainly to Ob- the ACA being implemented are healthcare crises yep. that people get into what you just described, two hundred thousand dollars in debt, yep. and that clearly has motivated you to be for um, healthcare for all. And I'm curious whether you specifically are advocating for a single payer system in yeah, your campaign. I, yeah, I think we we need to get to Medicare for all. That's going to be the way that we are able mm-hmm. to to best achieve universal healthcare. Um, and, you know, really for me, it's about how do we make that system? How do we lay the groundwork to make sure that that system 
is completely successful. Uh, you know, when we have a president who's finally going to sign something like that. And what's interesting is I've been a Medicare for All advocate for a very, very long time, and the ground on that has shifted so dramatically just in the last year or two. And certainly I give a lot of credit to that to Bernie Sanders having pushed that Mm -hmm. in his campaign where you now have 13 senators co-sponsoring his Medicare for All bill in the Senate. It's been a huge thing. Yeah, it's pretty amazing if you think about it. At one point when he introduced it, there were exactly zero co-sponsors before his campaign. And I only bring that up because of the way in which campaigns and campaigning and arguing for something can shift the ground. And I'm sure you're seeing that yourself. And that's kind of where I'm interested in your perception out there is here you are running against a Republican, although the district is considered a toss-up, or you're running in the jungle primary in California. So you may, for all you know, mm-hmm. be facing another Democrat. But let's assume that Steve Knight, who's the incumbent, ends up in one of the one or two positions at the top. You would be running against him. And there are conservative um, areas in your district. And not only that, as important, half your family, as you point out, is Republican. So tell me about how you yeah. talk about those issues to that kind of voter base. Yeah, let's take health care, for example. Uh I think getting into a discussion about how we achieve something is really productive when you're talking about somebody who's typically aligned with a different ideology. So instead, I think it, it comes to taking the higher ground and saying, well, what can we all agree on? And what we know we can all agree on is that if somebody's laying in the middle of the street and they're hit by a car or they're injured in some way, you're going to stop and help them. And you know that you're going to call an ambulance and you're going to say that they, they deserve to get treatment. They deserve to get medical help so that they survive. And you're going to do whatever you can to make sure that that happens, whether it's an inconvenience to you or not. So the same goes for any kind of health care. And I think that that's – if you can lay the groundwork in that way and say that every, no one should ever have to make the decision between putting a roof over their heads – and going to the doctor or making sure their kid can go to the doctor or, you know, uh, getting a surgery that could ultimately be life-saving. And uh, those, are, those are things that, um, if we bring it back to that base level, are, are pretty uh, indisputable. So that's where I've found the most success. And then, and then in terms of talking about how, um, rarely, rarely is that as, as useful. Um, you know, if you t- talk about single-payer, there's so many misunderstandings misunderstandings about what single payer really is. Um, so I don't know, I, you know, that's a term I think that is, is rarely very effective. Medicare for all is one that is much more effective, Mm -hmm. but I think there's Mm -hmm. still even a fair amount of that opens up a a lot of room for, for debate around that. Uh, and, and we should have debate around it. We're going to, but I think when you're talking about just the, the very brief conversations that we can have with voters, most of the time, uh, I find that, you know, talking about how just, just in, in general, we all need to have health care that we can afford, period. Can't argue with that. Right. So in that support that you're getting, it must translate then not just into the people walking in and out of the office, but also the kind of small donor support that you do need to contend with big money. Yeah. So I've, I've said from the beginning of this campaign that I'm not going to be taking any corporate money. And I've actually gotten a lot of pushback from uh, current members of Congress and um you know, other, other people who, who 
who want to support me, but are saying like, you're not, there's no way you're going to have the resources you need if you aren't taking corporate money. And I said, well, there's no way that I can have the level of trust that I need with my constituents if I do take corporate money. So this is how we're going to do it. Um, so I've, I have a campaign that we've, we've raised about uh, pushing, you know, $700,000 at this point. Mm. And that's, all been from individuals. We've had a, a couple of organizations like Emily's List and um, a few other women's groups that have given some larger checks, but almost entirely from individuals. And our average donation is still, despite our bigger contributions, is still about a hundred dollars. Mm-hmm. So we have over four thousand individual donors, which I'm incredibly proud of. That is, I, I think, at least three times the number of small dollar donors than anyone else in the race. Um, it is, I believe. 10 times or more. I, I, actually, no, it's, it's more than that because I, I think on the last filing, we saw that Steve Knight had 40 individual donors. <laughs> so you're looking, you're looking at a pretty big disparity there. Um, but that's, I think that shows you a few things. These are people who have never been politically involved in their life before. Um, they're people who have usually never, never given any kind of political contribution, but they're becoming, they're, they're, they're invested in the campaign. And some people are, you know, giving what they can because they can't give their time there or they're, they can give both. And our number, some of the conventional wisdom around campaigning is that you never ask your volunteers for money. And I've said that, no, that's, that, that's crazy. We're running a grassroots campaign and we should tell everybody who wants this campaign to win that if you have something that you can give, whether it's $5 or $500, you should give it because we need it. And I'm not ashamed of that. That's, that's because that's exactly the kind of campaign we're trying to run. And, and what I've found is that people want to give, people want to support you. They want to make this, this possible. And, um, they feel, they feel like they're, they have, they, they can help and they're making, a, they're making a difference this way. And the truth is in this kind of a campaign, every dollar makes a difference and they are. You have been a public person in a sense of running a state organization, being an advocate for homeless services and housing in people assisting the homeless, which is the organization you run. But this is different. You're out there beating the bushes and on the campaign trail. You are the focus of people's attention. What's that been like? Mm-hmm. Yeah, let me start with the positives. I think the most humbling experience for me is how people, total strangers, show up for you and how they will work hard for you and they believe in what you're trying to do. And, uh, and they're they just so committed. I mean, just the other day I went into the, into the office to the head, you know, we have a campaign headquarters now and I stopped by to pick something up and I ran into several different volunteers who came in throughout the day. And, you know, there were people, many of whom I'd never met at all. Uh, you know, some of them, I don't even think I'd seen at an event before. One of them was getting signatures for me with her four-month-old baby that mm. she was walking around with and, and getting signatures for, and she was just so excited about our message. Another one was um, was someone, she was, a, she was a gay woman, and she said that just the fact that I was, I said on my website that I'm bi mm-hmm. and that I, I'm willing to be an advocate and say things that most people, most politicians don't say is, is so powerful to her and so meaningful, and she's like, we need champions like that, and uh, and then I had a, a, a Muslim guy come in and say, you know, I know I, I, everybody at my mosque is talking about you because we know that you're going to be someone who will stand up for us. And mm-hmm. and this is the, all of that is just mind blowing to me where it, it's just it's really, really powerful and uh, humbling. And, and it it makes it in the days that, you know, the tougher days where you just there's no way you can give up because there's so many people who are behind you and are fighting for you. And um you, it, this is much bigger than you. So that's, that's probably my favorite part about it. And also 
in a, in a lot of ways, kind of the most intimidating parts about it because you don't want to let people down. But um, on the flip side, I would say the most difficult or frustrating thing that I've seen, there's, there's, there are two parts and they kind of are tied together. But um, I would say it's the, the aspects of the system that are just so uh, wrong and need to change. And at the same time, you're dealing with how do you work within this system in the meantime until you can, until you can have the power to change it. I'll bet you. Um, I'll bet you fundraising comes number one in that that question about the system. Fundraising, absolutely. <laughs> fundraising, absolutely. But also just the existing power dynamics within the party and within mm. kind of the the establishment and the way the quote unquote way things are done. You know, the consultants. I mean, just all of it. It's 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 very much. As soon as you get into it, you're like, whoa, this is this is there's a lot here that is just not good. Um, well, give us an example, give us an example of that. I'm guessing that it, that also affects you, especially because you're a woman coming into a yep. male dominated system. That's so that's where I was going to transition to next was mm-hmm. that, uh, the sexism that I've encountered in this has just been unbelievable. So I, I'm, you know, I grew up in Southern California. I grew up in a family that was I never, I never for a second thought that there was something I couldn't do as a woman. Um, my, my family, my dad, even though he was, is a conservative has always been on the side of, you know, you should be able to do absolutely whatever you want. And whether that's from sports to, uh, to, to business, to anything. And, um, so I moved and then I moved into the social services sector, which the nonprofit sector, which is full of women in leadership positions. Um, and when I started at PASS, you know, we didn't have as many people in, as many women in senior management. But by the time I left, we had gotten to the point where 70% of our management team were women. So it was, you know, it was, it was a culture, right, of, of women in leadership positions. And that was the case for many of the nonprofits that we worked with. Even in the government sector, I work in L.A. County where the Board of Supervisors is now four women out of five. Uh, supervisors. And so it's, it's just an area where, you know, that, that kind of, you feel, you feel like anything's possible and and being a woman doesn't hold you back. Right. But then I get into politics and uh, immediately you start seeing the difference. You start seeing how, how people are, are willing, are just feel like they can tell you how you should dress, how you should do your hair, how you should do your makeup uh, without, without a second hesitation. Uh, And then it gets worse and you hear, Oh, well, Katie's a nice girl, but can she stand up to Steve Knight? Is she tough enough to stand up to Steve Knight? Or, uh, you know, I really like Katie, but I don't know if she has the experience. And the irony is that, you know, my experience in the public sector is, is, you know, way beyond any of my opponents, especially on the primary side, uh, in terms of overseeing a $50 million a year organizational budget, 400 staff actually developing and implementing uh, legislation. So all of those are things that none of my opponents have, but the man in the race who's, who's a lawyer, I mean, yeah, he's a lawyer, but that's, that's it. And somehow he has more experience, which is just bizarre. He has, he's never held public office or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but then most recently, the one that's gotten to me is somebody who's really high up in the democratic party, who is, who controls a lot of sort of the, the party delegates in our region, mm-hmm. uh, he is, he said to me, he's like, you know, you are, uh, you're running a great campaign. I didn't think this was going anywhere from the beginning, but I'm really impressed with how much you've been able to fundraise with, you know, your, your polling looks great. Our, our polling right now shows that I'm the only candidate 
on the Democratic side that can beat Steve Knight. Um, but he's like, but I just don't think that anything but a white man can can beat Steve Knight. So <laughs> I heard that in my jaw, like dropped because this is a person of color who said that. But uh, also, we're in 2018, which is you know the height height of the the Me Too movement. We're in a year where we're seeing women defeat men, Republican men, in seats across the country, um, and at levels that we've never seen before. And this is still this is still such a pervasive mentality that it's happening at the highest levels of Democratic Party leadership. And um, and until that changes, and until people are willing to say no, it's that perception, it's that it's that mentality that's keeping it this way, that women have less than 20% of the seats in Congress, that, you know, even in the California legislature, it's the, the we have a lower number of women holding state, uh, state representation than we have in years. Um, it, this isn't going to change. So it's, it's one of those things that just kind of blows my mind. And it, it makes you, it makes you want to fight that much harder to just prove everyone wrong. Back in January, I had the great fortune to have on the show Abdul El-Sayed, who you may remember ran in the Democratic primary for governor in Michigan. You can hear that discussion that we had back then in our archive, as you can hear all our podcast episodes back in the archive by going over to workinglife.org. And so I asked Abdul to come back to chat with me about what we learned from Election Day. And the main reason I wanted to talk to you, Abdul, about what happened in the election was um, you as an important progressive voice in the country, uh, having just run your own race uh, in Michigan. And second, the the notion of kind of what the progressive movement is either strong at or lacking. I think you have um, some important perspective on that. So let's start with this, just a generic overall question. What was your sense of the results of the elections? What does it say for both Democrats, for progressives in general? Well, I mean, look, let's let's uh, let's first uh, give credit where credit is due. It's great that uh, we took back the House and um, in a pretty, pretty impressive fashion. Uh, but what I will say is that the Senate outcomes are relatively concerning. And I, I think more than anything, um, what's come home uh, after what was supposed to be a blue wave turned more into a blue trickle, um, is that we don't really have a message. And uh, where progressives have been trying to push uh, the party leftward toward a bold agenda, um, you know, the talking points sort of fizzled, right? It, it went to uh, people with pre-existing conditions, which is extremely important, but it's not a bold, aggressive talking point. It's let's protect the status quo. Um, and where we were having conversations about uh, corporate money uh, in politics and either a Green New Deal or even universal basic income, uh, you know, we, we had the same old talking points about uh, about unemployment. And um, and I think that's a failure of uh, our party to really grasp onto a strong progressive message, um, you know, because it takes time to move, uh, move the inside part of the machine. But I think that there's a lot 
um, a lot to learn here. And I, I do hope this emboldens the progressive movement. Mm-hmm. So let's pick apart some of those important points that you just mentioned. Yes, let's acknowledge the House was taken back and the Senate losses were, you know, it's pretty significant if you look around the country. And, and so one of the things that struck me, and this is a small part, there everybody would seem to be calling for Nancy Pelosi's head uh, prior to the election, and yet she oversaw, or was at least part of this takeover of the House for all sorts of reasons. And yet in the Senate, um, you have Chuck Schumer basically failing to both pro- project a progressive message, which you just articulated well, losing seats, and yet there seems to be no um, calling for a new leadership in the Senate. I wonder somewhat, at the very least, whether that's a double standard that has an element of sexism to it. No, it, it does certainly feel like a double standard, and uh, and I think the, the losses in the Senate are pretty profound. Um, I think in the long term, it's great that, that uh, we won back the House, but let's be clear, with one uh, one House of Congress uh, and without the presidency, with a stacked Supreme Court, um, there's not going to be much that <clears throat> we're going to be able to do. And um, you know, to me, I worry a lot about the need to uh, to be symbolic, um, uh, to to try and return uh, to the base something uh, for their effort. Um, and I just don't think symbolism is what we need right now. We need substance. You know, the beauty about a progressive message is that it, it crosses party lines pretty well. Um, and I know that because I traveled the state uh, talking about universal health care through a Medicare for all style system, uh, 100% renewable energy, cutting the, the corporate subsidies and investing in small businesses. And, um, and, and those talking points, they, they work, they matter. Um, but I just think the party's talking points weren't those. Um, and uh, and, and that's why, you know, we, we saw more of a blue trickle instead of a blue wave. Um, but uh, but I do think that there's a lot of benefit here. A, I know Beto didn't win, but uh, he ran, um, I think, a campaign that showed what can happen when uh, you really are grassroots and focused on on real people. Um, I, I was I was devastated by uh, Andrew Gillum's loss and, <clears throat> and frankly, what looks to be uh, Stacey Abrams is too. Um, I mean, these are incredibly capable uh, awesome candidates who uh, were running in the deep south, um, but uh, you know the Bradley effect is a real thing, and um, and I think our country still has a lot more uh, work we have to do to be able to move beyond uh, the kind of racism that still pervades. And um, and I think what was worse about this cycle in particular was that it just uh, Donald Trump has sort of taken the lid off some of the worst uh, in our political rhetoric, um, and you know both of uh, both of those candidates of color faced uh, what was disgusting uh, campaigning against them. And then uh, the frank voter suppression and, um, and, and the voter suppression uh, by you know, Republican secretaries of state running for governor, <clears throat> I just think is, um, <clears throat> takes us back to an era that I think most of us had hoped is bygone. Mm. And for my listeners um, who um, maybe didn't catch that reference, the important reference that Abdul made to the Bradley effect, when Tom Bradley was running for governor in California some years ago, he was apparently, he was a head in the polls and people assumed um, that he would win. And part of the reason that he didn't is a, a, a sense that when people were asked, would you vote for Tom Bradley? There was a significant number of people who actually harbored racist feelings towards Tom Bradley, who was African-American. He was the at the time the mayor of Los Angeles, and they didn't want to say actually what they felt. And they said, of course, I'll vote for him. And yet they didn't. And that was enough to swing 
the election to uh, George Duke Majin, who was a pretty right-wing Republican. And I think that's a great analogy here to certainly Stacey Abrams and, and Gillum. Gillum, to me, was a little bit more, and I'm talking from my perspective, of um, more of a little bit more centrist, moderate. I mean, he he took on some good positions, but Stacey Abrams, I mean, she was just, she's a great progressive and a real um, fighter. And I, the, I was really, I hope she can eke it out, but I think you're right. It looks like she might lose, but she was amazing. And I thought that um, that was a election that was really doable. And you, I think you are right. This was all about voter suppression. The Republicans explicitly went out and tried to suppress the vote in Georgia. Yeah. What I will say, though, is one of the biggest challenges that we have on the left, and I'm talking about uh, the progressive movement right now, um, is that in the past we hadn't had a bench and um, and we hadn't done a great job of institutionalizing our efforts. So coming out of the 2018 election, we've got some incredible candidates who ran and lost either at the primary level or uh, or in the general election who are going to come with substantially more experience, substantially more capabilities, a lot more of a developed network, and most importantly, a base of supporters who uh, they've empowered and inspired. And so I... Um, I feel really good about where the movement is headed. And then, you know, even in my own race, um, you know, I lost to someone who was substantially more center than me. Uh, but we were able to pull her left on key issues, whether it was uh, union issues or or a $15 minimum wage or shutting down Line 5, which is this oil pipeline that's sitting in the middle of the Straits of Mackinac uh, that could poison upwards of 10% of the world's fresh water if it were to go down. Um, these are issues that she was not talking about before the election. <clears throat> and we forced her to talk about because we were willing to talk about them. And so I think the future looks really bright. Um, and it's going to happen because we've got a real message to run on. And, and that's the most important thing right now is that you're, you've got to inspire people on what you believe, not on what you dislike about what the other person believes. Ah, this is a, and this is a great transition to what I wanted to ask you about. Um, the mechanics and the actual on the ground lessons that we as progressives learn. So one of the things that I've noticed and, uh, you know, tell me disagree or agree is that we are able to do pretty well. If you look at some of the results um, at the congressional level, at the district level, where progressives can go and actually knock on doors, walk the streets, and especially in congressional elections where you have some density, you look at uh, Rashida Tlaib winning in Detroit and Johanna Hayes in uh, Connecticut, and you go down the list, and yet statewide, and this is an election you ran in, it's a it's a more of a challenge. And if you look at the loss of Ben Jealous in Maryland in a relatively, uh, quote-unquote, blue Democratic state. And so I wonder whether there's all sorts of mechanics and reasons, but is a key one the question of, frank, frankly, just money, that we are still dealing as the progressive movement with not being able to marshal the resources to go toe-to-toe on a big map statewide. What do you think about that? So, I mean, that's the case, right? Our politics are as politics ought to be, which is uh, um, transformational and focused on conversations with real people in their communities. And that becomes a lot harder to do at a, at a larger level. Um, and I think that's why we struggled in, in gubernatorial uh, and senatorial races. And um, and so, you know, I, I think the, the, the focus right now has to be on two things. A, how do you scale progressive uh, organizing and activism? And I think there's some really great people thinking about that right now. Uh, but then B, how do you really hone the capacity to raise <clears throat> the kinds of small dollar funds that uh, that you need to do that? Now, I mean, 
Beto's race is a perfect example. He did exactly what he needed to do, raise $70 million, outrace everybody uh, in the entire country, and he did it without touching a dime of, of corporate or even tax money. Um, he did it the right way. Um, but the question is, you know, how do you, how do you replicate that? And, you know, Beto is the kind of candidate who just has a tremendous level of, uh, of star power. He's got the intangibles. Um, you know, he, uh, he, he, he's, he's great on the stump. He's exciting. His campaign was able to produce a number of viral moments. He was really good at taking people, uh, inside, uh, the campaign. And, um, and, and I think, I think those are all skills that, that we need to learn. Um, and we need to be able to, to hone on and build on, but the mechanics are, are really critical. I mean, I, uh, our, our campaign raised uh, $5 million, but we were still, uh, we were still outspent, um, particularly on TV, something like six to one. Um, and so, you know, we, we really got to be able to, to figure out how we take the edge off of, you know, corporate Democrats' uh, money advantage. And what I also noticed is that, you know, and again, I'm trying to be honest about this, is that where we had, um, say, Bernie Sanders come in and endorse people and even the our revolution effort, that fell short. What I mean by that, if you look at if you're if you're a baseball fan and you look at it as percentages, it was not that great. And that doesn't mean that we should say, oh, that, that was a failure because that takes time to rack up those wins. But I do think that some of what was missing is what you just talked about, is that on the ground stuff matters and just endorsements, meaning just putting your brand on something isn't enough. And I think you saw that when you ran for uh, office in Michigan statewide, it required that actual voter to voter contact on a regular basis, right? Yeah. I mean, and I'll tell you, our, our campaign touched voters. We, we were counting for about 70% of all voter contact in the entire race. Um, you know, the, the problem though, is that when, when you've got one opponent who's running Super Bowl ads and another one, uh, you know, who's spending millions in a week um, of both dark money and uh, and and their campaign money um, on TV that 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 really has an impact. And the fact of the matter is uh, is that we have to figure out how we compete there because knocking on doors and sending texts and making phone calls is awesome, and it really really works at a local level where the impact of TV is limited because a lot of folks just don't go up on TV. Um, but in the statewide race, you're talking about multiple media markets um, <clears throat> and folks spending millions a week on television. Uh, we've got to figure out how we um, counter that and uh, and the approach that we take to uh, to being able to campaign at scale, um, you know, in a way that really captures the ethos and the goals of, of progressive politics. And so my last question to you is I re- wanted you back on because I remember when we first spoke when you were running um, your your great voice and and the way you talked about progressive issues and maybe you haven't necessarily decided but what's your next step in terms of running for office or what you where you want to put your energy? Yeah, well I'll tell you right now I'm, I'm really focused on um, on building out some of the some of the policies uh, around uh, our politics, in particular Medicare for All. I'm a doctor by training. I was a former health commissioner, and um, and uh, so working on on a couple of projects there. Um, I will run again. Uh, I hope. Uh, I don't know what office. I don't know when, but I'll be back at it. Um, I do believe that uh, that that the learning that's done on the campaign trail um, needs to be put back in the effort. But you know, it's not about the elections. It's not about the campaigns. It's not about the candidates. It's about the work. Um, and for me, I just hope that uh, no matter what I do, 
that that my work is about advancing the causes of equity and justice and sustainability, um, and doing that both through policy and politics uh, that move people and move ideas and and most importantly move facts on the ground for people who really suffer. Um, and, and that's what that's what keeps me focused and driven. And that's why I didn't you know I didn't put everything down after the primary. I kept campaigning. We built a pack called Southpaw to uh, advance progressive candidates. And you know I'll keep going. Lastly, to make sense more of some of the numbers and why people voted, let me welcome back Celinda Lake. She was actually on our podcast last week. She's a good friend, a longtime national pollster about issues with especially a focus and an interest in women's issues. She joins me now to look back at the election results. And so here we are now thinking about what the election is telling us, and clearly the Democrats will now control the House. And uh, the the Republicans will continue to run affairs in the United States Senate, uh, apparently. The Democrats are going to pick up a lot of governorships, which is a good thing, too. But in terms of why people voted, you know, you and I talked about this a, a week ago, what we thought might happen. What do you think and what do you see and what's to learn from this? So there are three things that I think are really important. One thing is that normally... Off-year elections have one side energized or the other side energized. Trump is a very aggressive, audacious player. And usually presidents of both sides of the aisle say, oh, I'm not on the ballot. Um, and then after they lose seats, they say, oh, I'm sorry, maybe I was on the ballot. I should do things differently. He leaned in. He said, this is about me. He had a very aggressive campaign schedule and issues uh, around immigration, around the Supreme Court that really mobilized his voters. So you saw energy on both sides. And I think one of the things that this taught us, we can expect a 2020 that is going to have a lot of energized voters on both sides. The best news tonight for the presidency and for people who don't want to see Donald Trump reelected is that run of governorships in the, in the Midwest. Michigan, it looks like Wisconsin's looking pretty good. Pennsylvania, if you can win those states with governorships, first of all, it adds a couple of points to the presidential, and then you can win those seats against Donald Trump, and that you can win if you can win the upper Midwest. So there's some good news out there, but obviously, we've got a real battle royal for 2020. Mm -hmm. And just on the governorships, the other thing, and you know this well, but I think it's worth reminding uh, listeners why governorships are important beyond the presidential race, and especially coming up to 2020 when we're going to look at the redistricting and the governors, when you have a governor who is part of how the maps are going to be drawn for the next decade, and let me make clear to the listeners in case you don't know that every decade there's a census in the United States and then the, the districts are then drawn based on how the population shakes out and some states lose 
um, members of Congress and numbers of districts if their population goes down. But as important, they have to redraw the lines often to accommodate the population shift. And so what can happen if you have a governor of your party, he or she can veto a bad plan from his or her perspective, meaning a plan that might not favor his or her party, or approve uh, a quote-unquote good plan that is passed by the legislature. So having governors, Democratic governors, in those key states is really important for looking forward to a decade. Absolutely. It's absolutely essential. And of course, uh, redistricting, right now Democrats have to win 57% of the vote to get half of the House seats. Uh, so this is absolutely essential. The state legislatures are gerrymandered the same way. And the census and the gerrymandering affects massively the distribution of resources. So this is critically, critically important. Mm-hmm. And so on this point uh, about who voted and energized voters, I guess I was um, very, very optimistic, as you well know, leading into the last few days of the election, because I saw all this early voting. And I thought that the the surge of voters was really about new voters and younger voters coming out, um, people under 30, and those would be typically Democratic voters. Now, was I wrong about that? Or was it just simply the energy, to your point before, was on both sides? You were right about that, but the energy was on both sides. And actually, you saw that in the early vote. And in a number of states, Florida is still up for grabs, but way closer than I think most of us had hoped it would be. You saw advantage for Republicans over 2014, 2016 uh, in the early vote. So we've got a lot of work to do to figure out what worked, what didn't work, and how we get these voters out against a team that is so able and so aggressive about getting their own voters out. And also what they do quite well, because they know, at least I thought traditionally, they knew that high voter turnout typically helps Democrats. They're very good at voter suppression in key areas, right? right? So they, the Republicans don't want lots of people to vote because at least the theory goes, if we had compulsory voting, I always argue, as they do, for example, in Australia, (laughs) where you have to vote and maybe you have a little fine like they do in Australia. I think it's $50 if you don't show up to vote. But if everybody was, had to vote who is eligible to vote, the Republican party would be a rump party as a very tiny party, at least if in its current uh, makeup. So this is why Republicans are very, very focused on trying to prevent people from voting. That's right. And they know, particularly with changing demographics, that they can't win the way that they run now. And um, and so they try, they're trying to keep the electorate down. And here was one of the good things that came out of Florida was that ballot initiative that passed that now restores the rights of felons, previous felons yeah. to vote. That's, I think, if I'm not mistaken, that's about a million people in Florida. Is that right? It is. It's a huge number of people. And it's a huge number of people nationwide. This should really be um, a law that is passed nationwide and very, very important. And many governors can implement this. So hopefully these new Democratic governors will be implementing this law. And the public wildly supports it as uh, results in Florida showed because people figure after you've done your time, you should be able to vote. And it's part of bringing you into community and bringing you and making you a responsible citizen. Do we make anything from the fact that um, um, more, we talked about this, you and I did a week ago, that 
many women, and this was a point that you made, many women have won seats, as I quickly think about the women who won in the House of Representatives, but as governors, it's much harder. But in Michigan, that was a, a bright spot, certainly, right? So mm-hmm. how do you, looking at the women's vote and women being elected? Oh, in Kansas, yeah, mm-hmm. uh, it was a bright spot. Uh, Maine, it was a bright spot. Uh, we're going to reelect the governor in Oregon, and the results are not in yet, but that's clearly going to happen. So New Mexico, they called it. So it's across the board, and this is a big, big gain because it is much, much more difficult to elect women to executive office than to legislative office. So this is a big deal. And at least in the exit polling, and I remember I sent this to you earlier on Election Day, in the exit polling, um, a huge number of people, and this was an exit poll nationwide, I think it was something on the order of three quarters of the people, about 75%, said that they were in favor of having many more women in positions of power elected to political office, which, is that a shift compared to what, you know, you've been looking at these kinds of numbers for a long time? Is that a big deal, a big shift? It is a big shift, and the biggest shift about it is it used to be that voters gave lip service to it, but this year voters actually had that choice and followed that choice. So it used to be that that number didn't predict a voting for women at all. This time it appears to have. And one of the really bright spots is Pennsylvania, um, which has no women in their congressional delegation, is going to send three women now. Wow, that's that's pretty impressive. And on that topic, um, if you want to opine about this, there's been a lot of chatter about, is Nancy Pelosi going to be the next speaker? And there's this rumbling about whether she should be the next speaker. I would assume, although I guess not all um, people think the same, whether whatever gender, but with a large group of women being elected to the House of Representatives, she'll at least have uh, at least a, a larger cohort of like-minded people to support her, right? I mean, let's face it, a lot of the criticism, I guess what I was trying to say in a ham-handed way was, I think a lot of the criticism of Nancy Pelosi is about, comes out of sexism and um, not necessarily about whether she's good on policy or not. Oh, I think there's no question about that. And he will have a lot more women, although a lot of the freshman class, women and men, have said that they would not vote for, which I think was unfortunate that people got out that early uh, on that. But you'll have a lot more progressives in who support her. And uh, I think there are a lot of candidates to acknowledge without her energy on policy, without her energy on fundraising, we wouldn't have taken back the House tonight. Mm -hmm. And what do we learn, if anything, from what we are now going to see beginning right away, the 2020 um, race? Do we learn anything from this in terms of Democrats? Uh, what um, might be a stronger point for someone else to say, this This is why I should be the, the nominee? Or is there nothing to learn? Well, I think there's a lot to learn, but I think there will be a battle for the narrative about was it liberals who won or lost? Was it moderates who won or lost? Did healthcare help or hurt us? And I think that's all a very, very unfortunate um, debate, honestly, because I think Democrats should be united. Democrats won tonight. And the people that won also really leaned into a Democratic narrative. And I think that what is important is, and the people that won also mobilized their vote. And they won with women voters. So let's not lose sight of all of the things we have in common. And let's be united by Donald Trump. That should be very unifying. 
I, I, the one place I would disagree about this, I'm not so sure that coming into 2020, um, making Trump the issue directly um, would be that wise, because in fact, it seemed to me looking at the exit polling, 40 something percent, the big issue was in fact, healthcare. And certainly a lot of candidates were running on Medicare for all, although people debated, what do you mean by um, universal coverage. Um, I certainly support Medicare for all. And I think people were really energized by that. And Donald Trump seemed to be less of an issue for a lot of other people and a lot of voters. Is it a smart thing to make him the issue? Well, I think the thing is that he wasn't on the ballot. And so <clears throat> two things I would say. Number one, in pra- to mobilize Democratic voters, a lot of people did do digital strategies around Donald Trump. Very few Democrats in swing districts ran ads on Donald Trump at the end. You're absolutely right. They ran it on their issue agenda. They ran it on an implicit message of being a check and balance to Donald Trump. But frankly, with someone bigger than life and with someone who is an incumbent, I think it's very hard for the 2020 election not to be a referendum on Donald Trump. But this is a man with net negative favorability and net negative job performance nationwide. Mm-hmm. What was fascinating to me, and this is where we can wrap up on the on the issue of issues, is that how fast the issue of Russia, Russia, Russia receded into the background. And, and, yeah. uh, and forever and ever, there were Democrats running around. That's all they could talk about was Russia collusion. And I guess the polling showed that that just didn't really matter to people. And to the extent that the Democrats were successful, they ran on for example, healthcare. That was the closing argument. And that appeared to be, that was didn't just appear to be, the exit polling showed that was the number one issue that was driving voters. Uh-huh. So that tells us something about what to make of, of Russia versus Medicare for all, meaning what do people really care about, the average voter at the kitchen table? That's right. Although I think I am of a narrower school, and you and I may disagree on this. I think we should have made more of Russia frankly, particularly for older voters, because there's a whole generation of voters, 50 plus, who remember, grew up entirely under the Red Scare and have very, very leery reactions to the Soviet Union. And I think, and are very protective of our election system and our security. So I am of the school that we should have made more of Russia, but you're right. Um, It became a very processed, esoteric issue for a lot of voters. And then it was domestic issues and kitchen table issues that dominated. That mix may be slightly different depending on the Mueller investigation and depending on Trump's business interests, which will be more revealed, and because it'll be a presidential election. But in general, it is always domestic issues that trump foreign policy. That'll do it for this week's episode. Thanks to my guests, Beto O'Rourke, Katie Hill, Abdul El-Sayed, and Celinda Lake. Our audio editor, as usual, is David Hebden. Thanks to our major sponsor, the Amalgamated Transit Union, and to our sponsor, the National Union of Healthcare Workers. Please do subscribe and support this podcast. You can do that over at workinglife.org and click on the Patreon tab. Your small contributions allows us to continue to do this podcast to, for example, bring you all these scores of candidates, these progressive candidates who ran in the election over the last 12 months. Thanks for listening. Look forward to having you back next week.